Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Did you know that 82% of all firearm homicides in the world occur in the United States? 82%. And of those, 59% of the victims here in the U.S. are black, even though they only comprise 13% of the population. Nationally, black people are eight times more likely to be killed by a firearm than white people. Well, did you know that in the United States, police officers fatally shoot about three people a day, every day of the year, three people. And did you know that number, three, is close to the annual totals of police shootings in many other wealthy countries? We're talking Finland, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, Poland, Japan, Iceland, They all don't even have three killings by police per year, and we have that every single day. And there's also a huge racial disparity in the number of police shootings. According to research, there are 2.5 times more police shootings of black people than there are white people, and that's on a per capita basis. This week, I'd like to look a little further back in the scientific literature than we usually do for this show. After all, we are called Bench Talk the Week in Science, so we generally focus on current scientific literature, but this week we're making an exception. We're making an exception because the topic is so important. We want to discuss the topic of police shootings in the context of racism. This week I want to tell you about a paper that was published back in April of 2018, not really that far back. The title of the paper is the relationship between structural racism and black-white disparities in fatal police shootings at the state level, unquote. This paper was written by seven different researchers, all housed in the Boston University School of Public Health, and it was published in a journal called the Journal of the National Medical Association. This is a peer-reviewed publication whose purpose is to address medical care disparities of persons of African descent. That's what this journal specializes in. Now, the source of the data about police shootings that was analyzed in this 2018 paper is the Mapping Police Violence Program, which is this really amazing database developed a few years ago by these three activists And their website is mappingpoliceviolence.org. That's all one word, mappingpoliceviolence.org. And I recommend you visit this site if you ever need solid facts about the impact of police violence on communities in the United States. Mappingpoliceviolence.org is a private, nonprofit effort being pursued by an all-volunteer staff. It's shocking, really, that the government doesn't keep track of the killing of its citizens by law enforcement officials, but it didn't until very recently. There really wasn't any centralized source of information about police shootings 
until the fatal shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri back in 2014. That appears to have really turned the tide. Starting in 2015, a year later, the Washington Post has since been keeping tabs on police shootings throughout the country. Just do an internet search for Washington Post Fatal Force to see that data. And after Ferguson, Barack Obama created a task force on policing policies, and that resulted in the creation of an FBI database that just recently went online. Well, it was January of 2019. And you can see that data on the FBI website. Just search for FBI Use of Force. We'll try to post links to these sites on our Facebook page, too. The article I'm reviewing today states that there are these two competing theories among social scientists about the unequal use of lethal force by the police. Don't forget, there's two and a half times more police shootings of black people versus white people on a per capita basis in the United States. The first explanation is what's called the community violence hypothesis. That says that there's more police lethal force used against black individuals due to the higher rates of violent crime in black communities. Basically, the community violence hypothesis is that there are more police shootings in black communities because the police have more interactions there. That's where the higher rates of crime are. Now, the alternative theory to this is called the threat hypothesis, and that states that the racial disparity in police shootings can be explained by racism, that it's structural racism that influences the direct interactions between law enforcement officials and black suspects. So there are these two explanations about why this is happening, and the authors state that there's actually been very little research on this topic in the past. They mentioned that they did a search of the research literature on PubMed, which is a database for most of the world's research publications in the life sciences and in biomedicine. And when they did that search, they only found seven articles when they used search terms racism and firearm. And that was back in early 2018. I just did a search on PubMed using the same terms, racism and firearm, and got back 18 results. So the literature has more than doubled in the past two years from 7 to 18. But that is still really a paltry amount of research on a very important topic. So that's what they're trying to do in this research article, to determine which of these two hypotheses provides the best explanation for the racial disparity in police shootings. Now, one of the issues that all researchers face in this kind of research, and maybe that's why there's not that much research on it, is how do you measure racism? So, for instance, apparently one group in the past looked at metadata about the number of Google searches for a single derogatory racial epithet. That's how they measured racism. Now, these authors state that that's a very crude way of quantifying racism in a community. This paper focused on two ways to gauge racism. The first are racial gaps in advantages, disadvantages. So they looked at racial disparities in things like household income, unemployment rates, home ownership rates, and educational attainment. They argued that disparities in these kinds of parameters were an indicator of structural racism. 
And by the way, their definition of structural racism is, quote, the systematic exclusion of non-white racial groups from resources and mobility in society as a means to secure or maintain power. From what I understand of structural racism, it's more of an umbrella term. It occurs in an array of context, historical, cultural, economical, political, institutional, and interpersonal. So the term structural racism pretty much includes everything from institutional racism down to individual biased thinking and prejudices that people might have about other races. Now, the other way they measured the level of racism in a community is to measure the amount of racial segregation there is in terms of housing. The idea here, I think, is that housing reflects more than just what happens when you have economic inequality. They state that racial segregation of neighborhoods is a measure of, quote, policies, laws, and institutional practices that systematically disadvantage blacks, thereby creating unique cultures of racism, unquote. I guess there are two ways of looking at it. Are our neighborhoods relatively segregated as a reflection of racism? In other words, are we segregated because of racism? One race doesn't want to live around another race. Or are institutions and government actively enforcing or encouraging segregation? Of course, it's sort of circular thinking because if racism results in higher rates of poverty, then lower income people can't afford more higher priced neighborhoods. And if children grow up in segregated neighborhoods, that ends up perpetuating the stereotypes and biases that people have. And that means the problem continually gets unresolved. I guess the use of magnet schools and busing for school integration was an attempt at addressing this situation. But anyway, that's what these researchers did. They wanted to explore the possible links between racism and police shootings by looking at these five things residential segregation, and then racial gaps in incarceration rates, educational attainment, and that's how many people receive college degrees, economic indicators, that means median household income and home ownership, and then finally, employment status. Those are the five things they looked at to quantify structural racism. And what about police shootings? Well, they didn't look at all police shootings. They only looked at police shootings that resulted in death, and they only looked at the number of people who were unarmed when they were shot. So that probably eliminates most major crimes like robberies and murders. And whereas past researchers had focused on specific counties or cities or even neighborhoods within cities, this paper worked at the state level. They felt that the data from individual communities was too unstable from year to year, and it didn't really reflect enough on the statewide policy elements of institutional racism. The time period that they studied was from 2013 until halfway into 2017, and they basically did a correlation analysis between fatal police shooting of unarmed citizens and structural racism, as determined by those five parameters I just mentioned. They did that same kind of correlation analysis for every one of the 50 states from 2013 to 2017. Now, there are a lot of other extenuating factors that can affect the number of fatal police shootings, and they tried to correct for them, 
For instance, the number of people living in each state is different, so they corrected for that. The percent black population in each state differs, so they had to correct for that too. The number of law enforcement officers in each state is going to be different, so they corrected for that also. And other factors that they corrected for include population density, like cities, household income, crime rates, gun ownership, and they corrected for the number of police shootings where the victim was armed, as well as black adult arrest rates, because those reflect how many interactions there were between police and suspects. And they finally expressed their data as the number of unarmed shooting victims per capita over this specific length of time, four and a half years. Phew, well, what did they discover after all of this analysis? Well, they found that black individuals, whether armed or unarmed, were fatally shot by police at a rate that was 3.1 times higher than for white individuals. And unarmed blacks were fatally shot at a rate that was 4.5 times higher. But there was a whole lot of variability in this discrepancy between black and white. Twelve states didn't have any police shootings of unarmed black individuals during this period. Moving from east to west, it was Connecticut, New Hampshire, West Virginia, Iowa, Kansas, South Dakota, North Dakota, New Mexico, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and Alaska. There were no police shootings of unarmed black individuals during this period in those states. South Carolina was a state where there was more police shootings of unarmed whites than blacks, and the ratio was equal in Vermont and Hawaii. And then the states with just slightly more fatal shootings of black individuals were, and I'll go in increasing order, Alabama was the lowest, Delaware, Louisiana, Tennessee, and our own Commonwealth of Kentucky. Now, the state with the highest discrepancy between black versus white police shootings was Maine. In Maine, there was 58 times more fatal shootings of black individuals compared to white. 58 times. Other states with the highest rates of black shootings compared to whites were Illinois, 21 times higher, Wisconsin, 16 times higher, Virginia, 14 times higher. Of the seven states bordering Kentucky, only West Virginia had a lower ratio of police shootings of black than white than Kentucky does. Tennessee was equal to Kentucky, 1.7 times more unarmed black individuals shot by police compared to white individuals, 1.7 times more. Well, that's the spread of data for police shootings. What about structural racism? Again, there was a lot of variability between the states. The state with the lowest calculated state racism index was Montana, followed closely by Hawaii, and surprising to me, Kentucky. Kentucky was third from the bottom for structural racism. Now remember, they calculated this index based on the following variables, how much residential segregation there was, and then racial gaps in incarceration rates, proportion of college degrees, median household income, home ownership, and employment status. The states with the highest state racism index was also sort of surprising to me. It was not the southern states. Wisconsin ended up with the highest amount of calculated structural racism, followed by and in decreasing order, 
Minnesota, New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Iowa, and California. The southern states that we associate with Jim Crow, for instance, like Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Louisiana, North and South Carolina, they were all in the middle of the pack in terms of the calculated state racism index. Well, what was the correlation that they found between the ratio of black-to-white police shooting of unarmed individuals versus the level of structural racism in each state? Well, it was a positive correlation. The more racism in a state, the greater the relative number of unarmed black individuals fatally shot by police. If you do have a background in statistics, I could tell you that the R-squared value, that's called the coefficient of determination, it was only 0.25, which is relatively low. The highest would be 1.0. My background is in the natural sciences, and I like to see an R-squared value of 0.6, 0.7 or above before I really feel that there is a predictive relationship between variables. But I've read that in the social sciences, researchers just can't get R-square values that high. Apparently, it's because human behavior is really difficult to predict, if you can imagine. So, apparently, this R-squared value of only 0.25 is okay. That shows that there is a correlation between racism and police shooting of unarmed black individuals. These researchers at Boston University were then able to make some predictions based on this correlation. For every 10-point increase in a state's racism index, the disparity between black-white shootings increased by 24%. The lowest value for the racism index was in Montana. It was 26 there, while the highest value was 75 in Wisconsin. And so it's pretty amazing to think about. For every 10-point change from 26 to 75, there was another 24% increase in the relative proportion of unarmed black individuals getting fatally shot by police. And by the way, Kentucky's racism index was 34.1, so closer to the bottom of that spread rather than the top. And we are also closer to the bottom when it came to the ratio of black versus white shootings by police. The factors that appeared to be most important in determining this correlation appeared to be the amount of segregation, economic indicators, and employment. But it's segregation in housing that really appears to be the most important predictor of police shootings of black individuals, which I guess makes sense because the other two factors, income and employment, they're two main determinants of where people live. People have more options to choose where they live when people have jobs and a higher income. What's interesting is that these researchers did the same kind of comparison between structural racism and police shootings of armed citizens, and they found no correlation at all. Racism doesn't appear to play a role in police attacks on armed people, only the unarmed. The authors offer an explanation for this. When police officers are faced with an armed suspect, they have to make that decision to shoot much more quickly than for an unarmed person. There is less time for inherent racial biases to kick in. But with an unarmed suspect, there isn't that immediate threat. 
the officer has more time to size up the situation, and that gives more time for subjective racial biases to enter the picture. At the beginning of this story, I told you about these two hypotheses about the ultimate cause of racial disparities in police shootings. Remember, there was the community violence hypothesis, which says that communities of color have higher rates of violent crime, so they naturally have more cases of police use of lethal force. But then there's the threat hypothesis, which says that racist attitudes are responsible for the greater number of police shootings of black individuals. Well, these researchers conclude that both of these things are taking place. In terms of the degree by which police are racially biased, it's linked to the structural racism that is present in the state they live in. This paper points out that there isn't one single factor that helps explain the increased rates of police shootings of people who are black. It's not just education or jobs or incarceration. It's the entire history of structural racism in that region. I found a quote by Aldina Mesek, an undergraduate student and lead author of this paper. She said, quote, We use indicators of structural racism that reflect a long history of racial oppression by institutional practices such as redlining, the creation of exclusionary or sundown towns, mass incarceration, and other forms of racial discrimination. She says, residential segregation does not occur overnight. It's the direct consequence of a long history of institutionalized racial oppression, unquote. And then Anita Napoff, a graduate student who is a co-author of this paper, says, quote, This suggests that the higher rates of fatal police shootings of unarmed black victims are not merely a result of more interactions between police officers and police suspects. Instead, our results indicate that in some states, there is a systematically different response based on the race of the suspect, unquote. And Michael Siegel, professor of community health sciences at Boston University, and he was the senior author of this paper, I found a quote of his saying that, quote, the problem of police killings of unarmed black victims should not be viewed merely as a problem of flawed action on the part of individual police officers, but more as a consequence of the broader problem of structural racism, he says. Unjustified homicide by police should be added to the long list of the public health consequences of societal racism. This research should change the conversation about the problem of police shootings. Part of the resistance to openly discussing this issue is that many people feel offended by criticisms of people who are risking their lives to protect all of us, Our study suggests that this problem is not simply about the actions of individuals, but about the actions of all of society, hopefully reframing this from an individual to a societal problem will pave the way for a meaningful discussion about institutional racism, unquote. Now, I have to admit, this 2018 paper is a bit academic. And it seems to underemphasize the responsibility of individual police officers to not allow their own racial biases to affect how they deal with black citizens. Like in the shocking case of George Floyd's brutal death under the knee of a Minneapolis policeman on May 25th, 2020. 
And in the case in Louisville of Breonna Taylor, shot and killed in her own home on March 13th, there appears to be enough blame to go around for the entire Metro Police Department, not only in the death of Ms. Taylor, but in how the department and the National Guard handled the protests afterwards. Well, short of eliminating structural racism in this country, which is obviously a critical goal, what reforms might there be for law enforcement departments now? Well, there's an activist group called Campaign Zero. They're an offshoot of the Black Lives Matter group, and their goal is to reduce police violence. Campaign Zero has released 10 recommendations for reducing police shootings and other types of repressive police behaviors, and I thought I'd read them to you. Here are Campaign Zero's recommendations. Number one, end the broken windows policies by decriminalizing crimes that do not threaten public safety, end profiling and -and stop-and-frisk policies, and establish alternative approaches to dealing with mental health crises. Number two, establish effective civilian oversight structures and remove barriers to reporting police misconduct. Number three, establish standards and reporting of police use of deadly force, revise local police force policies, end traffic-related police killings and high-speed chases, and monitor how police use force and increase accountability for use of excessive force. Four, have more independent investigations and prosecution of police. Do this by lowering the standard of proof in civil rights cases against police. Use federal funds for independent investigations and prosecutions. Establish a state special prosecutor's office for police violence cases. And require independent investigations for all police killing or serious injury cases. Number five. Recruit police officers who represent the demographic characteristics of their communities and use community feedback to inform policies. Number six, require police body cameras and legislate or uphold the right to record police. Number seven, invest in rigorous and sustained training of police, possibly including implicit bias testing. Number eight, in police department quotas, limit fines and fees for low-income citizens, forbid property seizure, and require police budgets to pay for their own misconduct fines. Number nine, in the federal government's 1033 program that supplies military weaponry to local police departments and institute local restrictions to prevent the purchase of military weapons by police. And finally, number 10, remove barriers to misconduct investigations and civilian oversight, keep officer disciplinary history accessible to police departments and to the public, and ensure financial accountability for officers and police departments that kill or seriously injure civilians. Those are the 10 recommendations by the Campaign Zero movement to make law enforcement more accountable to the public in the future. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. 
If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.